Catholics are to love God with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our strength, and with all our minds. With every fiber of our being, every little last bit of ourselves, we are to love God in every internal experience, every thought, emotion, body sensation, intention, impulse, attitude, belief, assumption, every desire, every internal experience is to be oriented toward loving God so that nothing within us is oriented in any other way. That's the challenge. That's what the commandment means, to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind. So let's get into what this means a little more deeply. Father Jacques Philippe, in his book, Searching for and Maintaining Peace, this this may be my favorite book for dealing with anxiety. Father Jacques Philippe, Searching for and Maintaining Peace, page 37, quote, In order that abandonment might be authentic and engender peace, it must be total. We must put everything, without exception, into the hands of God, not seeking any longer to manage or to save ourselves by our own means, not in the material domain, nor the emotional, nor the spiritual. We cannot divide human existence into various sectors, certain sectors where it would be legitimate to surrender ourselves to God with confidence and others where, on the contrary, we feel we must manage exclusively on our own. And one thing we know well, all reality that we have not surrendered to God, that we choose to manage by ourselves without giving carte blanche to God, will continue to make us more or less uneasy. The measure of our interior peace will be that of our abandonment, consequently of our detachment. We need, dear listeners, we need to identify where our no-go zones are within. No-go zones or no-go areas. These are neighborhoods or some geographic area where some or all outsiders either are physically prevented from coming or can enter but only at risk. No-go zones. These are the zones within us where, where we don't allow God to come in. God doesn't come into those no-go zones. There's this compartmentalization. There's this lack of integration. And this could be our recreational time. Like, God can't be there when I'm watching football or when I'm playing poker or when I'm gossiping with my friends. That would be kind of a killjoy. That would be kind of a buzzkill. We don't want that. God can't come into my work life because my business, it's a dog-eat-dog world. It's highly competitive. Sometimes we have to do things we're not proud of. Or maybe in my sex life, right, where I'm caught between my partner and my beliefs. And so, therefore, I'm opting to go with my partner. No-go zone for God in my sex life. That could be it for some people, right? Whatever my private attachments are, my drinking, my flirting, my shopping, whatever we're attached to. That's at one level. There's another level of no-go zones within us. And that's the deep shame, the rage the intense sadness, terror. It's whatever that inner darkness is within us. Could be a trauma zone, right? Because of betrayal, because of abandonment, because of attachment injuries. There's these attempts to seal all that off, 
to seal all that off from everything and everyone in order to keep functioning, to keep on with our day-to-day life, with our day-to-day activities, with our role responsibilities. Welcome to Interior Integration for Catholics. I'm clinical psychologist Peter Malinowski. I am here to guide you toward loving God, toward loving your neighbor, toward loving yourself in an ordered, healthy, and holy way. And how do I do that? We focus on natural level impediments. We focus on these psychological obstacles to tolerating being loved and to loving God, neighbor, and ourselves in the best possible ways. This is all about your human formation. This is all about the natural foundation for your spiritual life. So many of our spiritual problems are really rooted in our human formation, the natural foundation for our spiritual lives. There's disorder there, there's something wrong there, and it's going to ripple up through the entire spiritual edifice. And so this podcast is all about bringing the best of psychological understanding to you for your human formation to help you along the road to salvation, to help you along the road to that intimacy with God. This is episode 73. It's released on June 21st, 2021, and it's titled, Is Internal Family Systems Really Catholic? I get this question quite a bit, actually. So many of you know that I'm trained in internal family systems. It's by far my primary go-to therapeutic modality that I use with my clients in my private practice. It's also the primary thing that I think about when I'm working outside of therapy, when I'm working in human formation, when I'm interacting with other people, I think along internal family systems informed lines. And so as I'm talking about this, some people are like, hey, but is this really Catholic? It makes sense, right? We don't want anything to keep us from God. We don't want anything to get in the way of our salvation. We don't want to be misled, right? We don't want to be lured away. We don't want to be tempted in some way. So we want to talk about that in this episode today. But let's back up a little bit and talk about what contributions I think IFS has made. There's really two major paradigms that Dick Schwartz has brought to us in, in developing internal family systems. The first paradigm is the plural mind, and the second paradigm is systems thinking. So let's go to the plural mind. What do I mean by that? Well, that means that we have a mind that is in conversation with itself. That, that is that we have a non-unitary mind. We have a relational mind. We are relational beings within ourselves, not just with other people, but within ourselves. We have internal dilemmas. We have internal conflicts. We have polarizations. We have all kinds of things going on within this multiplicity of self, which means that we can observe ourselves, that we can witness ourselves, that we can connect with ourselves, that we can relate with ourselves, that we can love ourselves. That's the first thing, the plural mind. Now, Dick Schwartz was not the first person to posit this idea, but he, I think, has done more than anyone else to popularize it. Just like Freud was not the first one to come up with the unconscious, Gustav Fechner in 1873 was talking about that decades before Freud was writing. But Freud really was the one that brought it into the popular imagination, brought it into the lexicon of the day. The second thing that Dick Schwartz has brought in is systems thinking. Systems thinking had been around, for example, in family therapy. But what Dick did was he brought it inside. He brought systems thinking inside the person. This is a tremendous advance 
in understanding the human person. So what that means is we can now understand what's happening inside us as we understand how systems work. And this could include like a family system, right? How different members of a family interact can be actually reflected within my own psyche. The third thing, because those are the two paradigms, but there's also this third thing, this core self protected from harm, this core self that's rich in all kinds of naturally endowed resources that can be accessed if conditions are right within the self. That's a third thing that Dick Schwartz has brought in. Dick Schwartz was raised in an atheistic home. He was culturally Jewish. And as he writes in the foreword of Jenna Riemersma's book, Altogether You, he says, quote, My father was a scientist who taught us that religion was at the root of many of the world's conflicts and slaughters. I maintained a skepticism about anything spiritual until I began exploring my clients' inner terrains and encountered their self. So, Dick Schwartz really started out from a position of atheism. He really started out from a position, I would argue, reading between the lines of enlightenment-informed optimism about the human person once he discovered that we have the self. He had a very phenomenological approach to understanding what makes people tick, how people are organized inside. And phenomenology is the study of structures of consciousness as experienced from the first person point of view. It's an approach that concentrates on consciousness and the objects of direct experience. So it's really about understanding what is going on in the present moment within a person's conscious awareness. That's what he was doing as he was trying to sort out how best to help people, how best to, as a therapist, as a family therapist, how best to connect with people. And he decided at a certain point to set aside his preconceived notions. He decided to set aside the orthodoxy that reigned in the 1980s in the field of family therapy, in the field of couples therapy, in the field of psychotherapy in general, and to privilege data over pride. In other words, to really set aside these assumptions, come in with an open mind, see what people were describing within themselves. And he says this in IFS Therapy, the second edition on page 19, quote, We can enter the unconscious and, and, and interact with it directly, asking questions about the desires, distortions, and agendas of the inner system. In response, our parts will answer clearly and take the client directly to crucial scenes from the past and explain what is most important about their experience, removing the need for us to speculate, reframe, interpret, or instruct. Now, one of the reasons why I so appreciate internal family systems approaches is because they have so many advantages. The first is that we really trust the client to be the primary therapist. The client self becomes the primary therapist. The client becomes more and more responsible for his or her inner life, which is is very consistent with Catholicism, right? It's not it's no longer going to be the therapist who has the responsibility for making the interpretations, for providing understanding, for being the primary relationship in the client's life or any of that. Really empowers the client to take responsibility for what's happening inside. 
Let's talk about Catholicism and IFS. I feel very strongly that everything that I do as a psychologist needs to be grounded in a Catholic anthropology. Our understanding of psychology, our understanding of the human person really needs to be informed by a Catholic anthropology. And what is a Catholic anthropology? All right, so with a few modifications, this is from Wikipedia. Catholic anthropology is the study of the human person as he or she relates to God. It differs from the social science of anthropology, which primarily deals with a comparative study of the physical and social characteristics of humanity across times and places. So we're not talking about the secular science of anthropology. We're talking about a Catholic anthropology, and that's the study of all things human as we relate to God. And so that's going to be informed by philosophy, theology, epistemology, and metaphysics. Now, I also want to say that as we get into this whole question of Catholicism and internal family systems, I am deeply aware that I am responsible for my words, for everything that I say in these podcasts, for everything that I teach. I don't want to lead anyone astray. I take that obligation, that responsibility really seriously. I'm really aware that my words are going to be measured. On my day of particular judgment, I'm going to be responsible for the things that I say. And I'm also going to be responsible for anything that I don't say. I really believe that it's important for me to get this message out. I feel really strongly called to talk about human formation grounded in a Catholic anthropology, to bring you the best of what I know through my decades of experience as a mental health professional to bring this to you, to help you along the way to salvation. Am I going to get some of this wrong? Probably. We're dealing with some brand new areas here. In humility, I have to say, there could be some things I get wrong. And so if there are things that I'm getting wrong, those of you that have the background in philosophy, theology, epistemology, metaphysics, let me know. I really do want to know if there's something that I'm teaching that seems to be wrong. I'm going to talk about being Catholic with a small c, and this is something that is really, really important to me. Catholic with a small c is from the Greek word katholikos, which means universal. And if you take that really literally, it comes from kata, which means in respect of, and holos, which means the whole, in respect of the whole. So this idea of being Catholic with a small c is so important in my formation as a, as a mental health professional because so many of the good things that have come to us, so many of the gifts that God has given us in the field of psychology, in the field of mental health, have not been given directly to, to Catholics or to Catholics that have been writing as Catholics. They've been given to other people. And St. Augustine in his book, De Doctrina Christiana, in chapter 40, he writes as follows. This is a little abridged, but... Moreover, if those who are called philosophers, and especially the Platonists, have said anything that is true and in harmony with our faith, we are not only not to shrink from it, but to claim it for our own use. All branches of heathen learning have not only false and superstitious fancies and heavy burdens of unnecessary toil, which we ought to abhor and avoid, 
but they also contain liberal instruction which is better adapted to the use of the truth and some most excellent precepts of morality, and some truths in regard even to the worship of the one God are found among them. Now these are, so to speak, their gold and silver, which they did not create themselves, but dug out of the mines of God's providence, which are everywhere scattered abroad. What is St. Augustine telling us here in chapter 40 of De Doctrina Christiana? He's saying that if God has given a good to somebody who's not Catholic, to somebody who's not Christian, take advantage of that good. Take advantage of it. Embrace it. Bring it into the service of the faith. And so I am not one that's going to wait around for for Catholics to discover everything, for Catholics to reinvent the wheel. I'm going out and I'm looking for what is going to help in human formation wherever I can find it. That's my position with regard to this. You are not going to find an effective treatment for bulimia in the writings of the early church fathers. You are not going to find an effective treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder in the catechism. And, you know, frankly, a lot of the very best stuff that's come out in, in, in the treatment, especially of trauma in the last 20 years, can be readily adapted. It can be modified. It can be made consistent with a Catholic anthropology. It's really important for us to harmonize any of these secular-based approaches with Catholicism and not the other way around. What happens sometimes is that there's this de facto harmonization of Catholicism with the secular approach. Catholicism is a revealed religion. And what what does that mean? Well, Catherine Beyer tells us uh, at LearnReligions.com that a a revealed religion is one based on information communicated from the spiritual world to humanity through some sort of medium, most commonly through prophets. The spiritual truth is revealed to believers because it is not something inherently obvious or something one could naturally conclude. The Judeo-Christian religions are all strongly revealed religions. The Old Testament includes many stories of those whom God used to transmit knowledge of himself and his expectations. Their appearance comes at times when the Jewish people have significantly strayed from God's teachings and the prophets remind them of his commandments and warn them of impending disaster as punishment. For Christians, Jesus arrived as God incarnate to directly minister to the community. So, A revealed religion shows its followers what's not available to them by the unaided use of their natural reason. So we believe in these precepts of the Catholic Church because they have been revealed to us as true by God. And so we want to hang on to them. We don't sacrifice those because something in our experience seems to tell us otherwise, not if we're being faithful to the religion. So the church is the guardian of the deposit of faith, the Catholic Church is. This is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, um, paragraph 889. In order to preserve the church in the purity of the faith handed on by the apostles, Christ, who is the truth, will to confer on her a share in his own infallibility By a supernatural sense of faith, the people of God, under the guidance of the church's living magisterium, unfailingly adheres to this faith. Paragraph 890, 
The mission of the magisterium is linked to the definitive nature of the covenant established by God with his people in Christ. It is this magisterium's task to preserve God's people from deviations and defections and to guarantee them the objective possibility of professing the true faith without error. Thus, the pastoral duty of the magisterium is aimed at seeing to it that the people of God abides in the truth that liberates. To fulfill this service, Christ endowed the church's shepherds with the charism of infallibility and the matter of faith and morals. All right, so this is a long way of saying we start with what we know to be true from divine revelation, from what Christ has revealed to us through his teaching, through his ministry, through the scriptures, what God has revealed to us through the tradition of the church. This is what we hold to first. Anything else, anything that we bring in from the social sciences or from the natural sciences or from anywhere else needs to be harmonized with that truth. That's why theology is the queen of the sciences. All right, so spiral learning. We're going to go back and review some of these IFS concepts because we're going to start looking at in what ways is IFS consistent with what we know to be true by divine revelation in the Catholic Church and in what ways is it not. So the definition of parts. Let's just review this again. Let's really make sure that we're understanding this. The way that Dick Schwartz understands parts of us are as separate, independently operating personalities within us, each with its own unique, prominent needs, its roles in our lives, each has its own emotions and body sensations and guiding beliefs and assumptions, typical thoughts, intentions, desires, impulses, attitudes, interpersonal style. Each part has a worldview. And as we talked about before, each part also understands God differently, and it has its own approach to religion and spirituality. Robert Falconer calls these parts, quote, insiders, end quote. And I gave an example of ten, my 10 parts in episode 71. If you want to listen to how these parts sort of lay out in various ways, you can hear that in episode 71. I also gave examples of how parts interact in sexual intimacy and marriage in episode 61. So you can check those out. Now, what I want to get to is that parts, they govern, they control these no-go zones that we talked about in the introduction. Parts defend these territories where other parts are not allowed to come, where the self is not allowed to come, where God is not allowed to come in an effort to help us. Now, their actions can be really misguided and even harmful at times, but their intentions are good. What I really like about IFS, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, is how it allows us to get access to all of us and in a way that's gentle and safe and secure and ordered and titrated, regulated, that is is respectful of our entire system, all of our parts and the self. Well, what is the self? Well, the self is the core of the person. It's the center of the person. This is who we sense ourselves to be in our best moments when our self is free, when it's unblended from all of our parts, when our self is governing our whole being as an active, compassionate leader. Some people describe this as our best self. So so we talked about how the first paradigm, the first major paradigm that IFS introduced and popularized was this idea of multiplicity within us. We are a multiplicity and we are a unity. And I'm going to draw some from Bill Richardson's article. Bill Richardson is a Reformed Presbyterian, and he's written probably the most theologically deep 
um, article that I at least I could find on IFS from a Christian perspective. Uh, it's entitled, Internal Family Systems Therapy Meets Evangelical Christianity, The Integration of Diverse Communities and Theories. This was back in 2007. I'm also going to be drawing from some other sources in my own experience too. And one thing that even before I read Bill Richardson's article that I realized is that, hey, we have a Trinitarian God. We have a God who is one unity in three distinct persons. There's this unity and multiplicity in God. Our God in three persons has the capacity to love himself. The Father and the Son love each other, and from that proceeds the Holy Spirit, which is love himself. So there is this ability in a, in a trinity and for there to be love within God himself. We are made in the image and in the likeness of God. We are partakers of the divine nature. So therefore, it may be possible that within us we have a unity and a multiplicity. That, I believe, is entirely, is entirely consistent with Catholicism. We can have a relationship with ourselves. We can witness ourselves. We can communicate with ourselves. We can have a conversation with ourselves. We can debate within ourselves about the merits of a particular action. We are conscious of ourselves. We have an awareness of ourselves. And we are to love ourselves. Going back to that quote, going back to the second great commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, which means that we are to love ourselves. Again, that implies that we have to have a relationship with ourselves. If we are monolithic unities with no parts within us, with no distinctions within us, if we're homogenous beings, then this whole idea of loving ourselves makes no sense because there isn't the possibility of relationship. And so this idea of the multiplicity of self, that we are, are have parts that are in conflict with each other or that align with each other or that interact with each other in various ways. This is a huge step forward from the idea that we have an internal conflict, for example, which is a staple of psychodynamic thinking. In psychodynamic thinking, we think about internal conflicts, but we don't think about them as stemming from different parts and that these parts have different personalities within them. We don't get there until we're starting to talk about dissociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorder, which is often treated as some sort of kind of bizarre, weird, kind of far out uh, diagnosis that doesn't connect back to a continuum of experience of parts. Let's take a look at James chapter 4 verse 1, where James writes, those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? This is a fascinating verse because St. James is talking about how external conflicts, interpersonal conflicts, conflicts between people really stem from the cravings that are at war within us. Right? So they come from the intrapsychic conflicts, the conflicts that come intrapersonally, that is within oneself. He's stating clearly, and this is the word of God, stating that those external conflicts, they stem from our internal conflicts. And those conflicts, they are our cravings, they are the desires that are at war within us. Well, again, that implies a kind of relationality, that implies that there is some kind of connection between us, relationship happening within us. 
Romans chapter 7. This is St. Paul, verses 15 to 23. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law of God is good. So then, it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin, which dwells in my members. Okay, so that was a re- kind of a long passage. Just break this down a little bit, right? You can see the internal conflict that St. Paul is describing within himself, the, the war within his members, the, the, conf- the conflicting desires. And he's talking about this idea of his self. It is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, he says. Right? He's recognizing now a distinction between his inmost self and I would argue his parts, which can be dominated by his passions. Right? So this is a really great description of Paul's phenomenology, right? His connection on a human level with God. I think there are really solid arguments from scripture and from theology to believe that we are both a unity and a multiplicity reflected in God's image. And then from scripture where we have these passages and there's several more, there's several more. You can find them in Bill Richardson's article. Also Jenna Riemersma in her book, Altogether You has listed some of them as well. You can look there for more examples from Scripture about multiplicity in the human person. But let's take a look at some of the things in which certain tenets of IFS are not consistent with Catholic positions. So in IFS, the self is the seat of consciousness. And Richard Schwartz identifies the self as the soul, as described in major religious traditions. Basically, he says that the self is perfect, it's undamaged, there is no need for the self to develop. And essentially, it is the self that redeems the parts. Richard Schwartz makes this argument that the parts are in need of redemption. And in his model of IFS, it's the self that is the redeemer. The self doesn't need redemption. The self is the internal attachment figure. If the self is leading the system, one can expect peace, harmony, and all kinds of well-being. And this sounds to me to be straight out of the Enlightenment, that central focus on man, that secular humanism. 
really in Catholicism, our Redeemer is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I also am not convinced that the self doesn't develop. I don't believe that the self is fully formed at birth, this core inner entity, this center of being. I think that the self develops over time as well. And I, and I believe that from Luke chapter 2, verse 52, where he says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So I don't believe it was Jesus's parts that developed along this, you know, trajectory of human formation. I believe also the self develops. So Richard Schwartz and I disagree about that. Also, there's a real question about original sin and its effects on the self. Obviously, St. Paul talks about how original sin has brought in concupiscence that has affected the parts, that has drawn them to things that are other than God. In that passage, he talks about how his self is oriented to God. I, I don't know. I just don't know what the effect of original sin was on the self. Did it escape totally undamaged? I suspect not. I don't think so. Another thing about the self is this whole question of agency. Problems come in, according to IFS, when the self is occluded by parts, when parts blend with the self and take over and drive the bus. So the self is the one that's supposed to govern the system. It's supposed to be the active leader. But it also seems to be curiously helpless in the face of parts that want to blend. In other words, in order to free the self, the parts have the agency. The parts are the ones that have to make the decision to step back, that have to make the decision to free the self. So there's a real question here about where does the agency lie within IFS? The parts need to willingly unblend to allow the self to be free. And Dick Schwartz writes, we can't command ourselves to be curious rather than contemptuous of our vulnerable parts. We can't force ourselves to feel compassion no matter how much we believe it's benefit. So his idea is really a model of liberation of the self through parts unblending, through parts unburdening, being freed from the things that hold them back. And then we are carried into another zone of being, this being in self. I question, like, what happens when a part refuses to cooperate? Because sometimes they don't cooperate. You can think about it like a little child who does not want to take necessary medicine or who doesn't want to go to bed. Sometimes that child is just not going to cooperate, no, no matter how much you attend or connect with that child. So what happens when a part is unwilling to cooperate? Is the self just beholden to that part? Is just subjected to that part's desires? It just doesn't seem to be consistent with how I understand the human person from a Catholic perspective. And so I think there's greater agency in the self in negotiating with parts. I don't think the parts are as in charge as as Dick Schwartz's model seems to suggest. The other thing that Dick says is that each part has subparts and each part has a self. He really believes that 
these parts are complete persons within themselves. Now, because Dick Schwartz equates the self with the soul, this means that each person, because there are multiple parts and each part has a self, that means each part has a soul. So there are multiple souls within a person, right? So there's the, the main soul for the person. And then there's as many other souls as there are parts. And then, because each part has subparts, does that mean that they have subsouls? Are those souls also souls within the person? So there seems to be this sort of infinite regress here. Do subparts have parts, right? And so forth. Sub-subparts. This starts to actually be, I think, really unwieldy and unhelpful to me clinically. I really don't think about parts having parts. I think about parts having personalities. Now, I mean, that's because I was trained in personality theory and I practiced, you know, a lot of personality assessment for years and years. So I really have a sense of like, how do personalities go together? It applies very well to parts. And I can conceptualize conflicts within parts by using some of this psychodynamic stuff that discusses conflicts. I don't need to necessarily invoke that a part has subparts. But this idea that you know, there could be multiple souls within a person, right? Because there are multiple selves, because there's one for each part. That is not Catholic. That I just have a lot of trouble with, the way that he's talking about it. And I also don't believe that these are complete little persons within because all the parts share a body. They don't have their own body. There's just one body. And so there's limitations to this idea that we have these as separate entities within. I don't believe that parts actually have their own will either in the way that Dick Schwartz describes it. I think parts have access to the faculties of the will and the intellect, and parts have access to the different appetites, the different passions within. They have greater or less access depending on what their role in the system is in a given moment, but that it's not that each has a complete set of faculties and appetites within. So, you know, so there's some divergence there between what I think is going on internally because I'm informed by my tradition. I take my revealed religion seriously. I'm going to prioritize that and harmonize what I understand from IFS to fit in accord with that. IFS has a real openness to the spiritual world and that is both a tremendous strength and it also is a weakness. One of the reasons I was really attracted to internal family systems is because of that openness to the spiritual world. IFS is the only therapy modality that I have ever found grounded in a secular anthropology that acknowledged the existence of angels and demons. I mean, it's amazing. They have a way of accommodating different spiritual phenomena including the effect of demons. They call them, demons would be considered unattached burdens in IFS. There's a way that they actually work with that. Now, again, there's different ways that, that we would do it within Catholicism. But the fact that there's an openness there is amazing. I love that about IFS. I love the fact that it can integrate with different spiritual traditions. On the other hand... Many people consider IFS to be a spirituality within itself. So, for example, Frank Rogers, an IFS therapist, he talks about IFS as a, quote, compassionate spiritual path. 
And in Richard Schwartz's 2010 Introduction to the Spirit-Led Life by Mary Stege, he stated, I gradually shifted my view of what I called the self from being an innate human capacity for self-healing to being a spiritual essence comparable to Buddha nature, Atman, the Tao, or the ground of being. Correspondingly, my view of IFS evolved from being a form of psychotherapy to being an integration of spirituality and, and psychology, or even to being a form of spiritual practice. So, this has gotten a lot bigger than just being a way of doing therapy. It's become a belief system. And as a belief system, it has a certain anthropology to it. It has its tenets. I would argue it has its dogmas. Now, they may not like that word because there's not a liking for the word dogma in IFS circles, but it has its central tenets. You know, for example, the multiplicity and the unity of self. That's a central tenet. That's a dogma, I would say, of IFS. And so it's particularly difficult to sort out in IFS what the central dogmas are. Because, as we just heard from Richard Schwartz's own quote, they have changed over time, which I respect, which I respect because his understanding has deepened and grown over time. I think he's made IFS better over time. If you read his 1995 book and his 2020 book, I think in those 25 years, he's really refined it, made it better. But I also think that his phenomenological approach, not being informed by any kind of structured belief system, and his lack of interest in systematizing the underlying concepts, the dogmas, if you will, the central tenets of belief, to systematizing those in a clear and transparent way makes it hard to evaluate some of those beliefs that go into IFS. Another problem, I think, with IFS is that it lacks an understanding of sin. Evil is acknowledged in IFS but its origins are not well explained. Harm exists, and, it, it's, it's, and that harm is caused by parts that blend, that blend within us, that blend with, uh, within other people, but these parts always have good intentions, and they just don't know any better, right? They're seeking a good as they understand it, but there's a lack of vision in the part, and so therefore, they're operating off of a distorted vision, and that's where the harm comes in. But there's no possibility of malevolence. There's no possibility of freely saying no to the good. There's no appreciation for original sin. In fact, Richard Schwartz has really condemned the idea of original sin. You can see this in that he and Robert Falconer wrote in 2017. The book is called Many Minds, One Self. And in that book, there's a chapter on Christianity. And I think there are some significant misunderstandings of Catholicism within that book. And there's a statement that, in general, Christianity has misidentified parts as sinful urges or tempting thoughts and has encouraged followers to develop managerial parts to fight them. So there is a kind of, so there's a kind of discontinuity between what IFS understands in terms of Christianity and how the Catholic Church understands itself. IFS really emphasizes confidence in the self versus confidence in God. And while I believe the self has many, many gifts on the natural level, many that are untapped, many resources that 
we can bring into play if we are in self, if we're unblended, I don't see the self as the redeemer of the system. And another thing is that a lot of people that are attracted to IFS are also into Buddhism. So Buddhism kind of makes its way into some of the trainings and so forth within IFS. As far as social and political and cultural positions, the vast majority of IFS folks would probably be considered liberals or progressives. Bill Richardson in that 2007 article said, quote, The IFS trainers were definitely neither religiously nor politically conservative nor evangelical believers. Their worldview was farther left than most of us knew existed, end quote. It was a training that was done uh, for conservative evangelical Christians. So a lot of LGBTQ-friendly stuff. The political positions are very progressive. There's a condemnation of patriarchy, for example, that wouldn't be consistent with a benevolent patriarchy as we'd understand it within the Catholic Church. So let's go back to our question. Is internal family systems Catholic? And I'm going to give you two answers. If you're looking for a model of therapy or if you're looking for human formation, that you as a Catholic can embrace unthinkingly, without reservations, without any scrutiny, without any critical thinking, just swallowing it whole, lock, stock, and barrel, then IFS, according to Richard Schwartz, is not for you. You're going to find things in there that are not consistent with Catholic thinking. But if you're really willing to make distinctions, if you're willing to parse out what is consistent and what is inconsistent with a Catholic anthropology, I think we have an absolute goldmine here. And not just for helping people with human formation on the natural realm, but with strengthening that natural foundation so that we can connect to God in much more intimate ways. Because anything relationally that keeps us from connecting with ourselves, anything relationally within us that keeps us from connecting with other people, we're going to bring that into our personal relationship with God. We're going to bring that into our personal relationship with our Mother Mary. So if you're willing to make those distinctions, if you're willing to enter into this, and it's messy, right? But to separate out what's true from what's not true, what's good from what's not good, what's helpful from what's not helpful, I think there's tremendous potential here. It's like driving with the headlights on. A lot of times we want to see, you know, the entire terrain. We want to see everything on the whole trip. But when you're driving with the headlights on, you see enough to keep going. And as you continue, you see further. And as you continue, you see more down round the bend. And as you go around the bend, you see the stretch ahead of you. And, the, and you can keep going like that. We see what we need to see. So let's talk about like what could be helpful. Well, I'm super excited that two graduate students in psychology are writing their dissertations on Catholicism and IFS. One is a student at Divine Mercy University who is writing about IFS and the anthropological considerations according to the Catholic Christian metamodel of the person, which is Divine Mercy University's basic anthropological exposition. It's an 867-page book, edited book that came out, edited by the faculty there at Divine Mercy University. I'm actually on that dissertation committee. I'm one of the readers. I'm super excited to see the work that that student's going to be producing. And I've heard of another dissertation that's looking at the, the concept, the IFS concept of self from a Catholic perspective. 
So the, the, the heavier duty philosophical, the anthropological work is starting to be done, which I'm super excited about. There's some recommended reading. Again, I would, rec- I would recommend Bill Richardson's article. That's Internal Family Systems Therapy Meets Evangelical Christianity, Integration of Diverse Communities and Theories. came out in 2007, and that's in the Reformed Presbyterian tradition. So it's going to be heavily influenced by Calvinism. You'll see some mention of the total depravity of man and some other things that aren't totally consistent with Catholicism. But, but I think there's some really valuable things in there. There's also three books that have come out that, uh, that I recommend looking into. The first is Boundaries for Your Soul by Allison Cook and Kimberly Miller. The second is Altogether You by Jenna Riemersma. And the third is Molly LaCroix's Restoring Relationship, Transforming Fear into Love Through Connection. Those are all about Christian approaches to IFS. None of them are specifically Catholic, but there can be some good things in there to help sort through these things. So let's discuss briefly going to IFS therapy. Should you go to an IFS therapist who's not Catholic? And I would say, well, it depends. It depends on where you are in your faith journey, where you are in your spiritual formation. If you are well-formed spiritually, and if your IFS therapist is really respectful of your Catholic beliefs, I would say consider it. Definitely consider it. You can ask hard questions about about, whether or not the therapist is going to respect those Catholic beliefs. Uh, there have been times where I've referred, uh, referred people to non-Catholic IFS therapists, to non-Christian IFS therapists, actually. And so, you know, there's, there's that possibility. Jenna Riemersma also has a, a list of Christian IFS therapists that are available. Uh, that's at her website, jennariemersma.com, J-E-N-N-A-R-I-E-R-M-E-R-S-M-A.com. So there's some resources there. We are working really hard in the interior therapist community to bring IFS to Catholic therapists. We have about 55, 56 therapists that are really working on their own human formation with, you know, within IFS in order to better bring that to their, to their clients. It's not formal IFS training. We can't do that. But we're really working with those therapists to understand themselves better through an IFS perspective in their own human formation. And then there's the... Then there's the Resilient Catholics community where I bring the best of IFS grounded in a Catholic anthropology to your human formation. That is an amazing opportunity, I think, to really engage with IFS concepts in community. We're going to do this through a network of interpersonal relationships, through our companions, through our companies. And if you're really interested in IFS from a Catholic perspective, I strongly encourage you to check out the RCC you can see the Resilient Catholics Community landing page at soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. If you join the community, you're going to get so many more resources to help you do your own interior work grounded in a Catholic anthropology. We use Bonnie Weiss's self-therapy workbook as a central text. We'll be drawing from that. You'll get a bonus podcast every week. We'll have office hours. We have conversation hours. And so there'll be a lot of connection as we as we go on this pilgrimage together, supporting each other on a journey to better human formation through IFS-based techniques grounded in a Catholic anthropology. That community will be open until the end of June, so just a few more days. Uh, June 30th, we're going to be closing that community for another six months. It'll reopen in December. So again, check out our website, soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. 
to see all the offerings for that. See if that's a good fit for you. Don't hesitate to reach out to me in my conversation hours. Those are Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You can reach me on my cell phone, 317-567-9594. We can talk about anything related to this podcast, to IFS and Catholicism, to the resilient Catholics community, to the interior therapist community, if you're a therapist, joining that, all kinds of things with that. Or you can reach me also at my email at crisis at soulsandhearts.com. And with that, we will wrap it for today. We'll invoke our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us.